Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. It's uh, episode 55. I'm here uh, just with Lisa tonight. Lisa, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Where's What foreign country is Leanne visiting this week? I've, I've lost track again. Did, did I hear New York? Uh, I think it's New York. I mean, what... What she's I mean was it Europe mere weeks ago and now it's yeah. New York. I, I mean clearly she's too good for this podcast. Student. I know she's she's back. She, she's basically a student backpacker at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just backpacking around, slumming around. Maybe Europe. flash packing. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe yeah. we can get a report from the hostel or something next time. She's staying <laughs> at. Um, we've got uh, I think a fairly quick episode uh, this week. We're going to uh, throw to an interview later with uh, Verena. Heron from the Independent Education Union. But uh, before we go to that, uh, we wanted to, this is our second episode back for the year, uh, and we're obviously midway through February, and we didn't really get a chance last week in a bit of a longer episode to acknowledge a big bit of news for the sector, which is the uh, the sort of introduction and implementation of the new national quality standard uh, for uh, all national quality framework services. So uh, we talked a bit about this uh, last year when the NQF review was announced earlier in the year, in uh, 2017, um, but it's now in action and we're now... Uh, we have the new national quality standard, and you know, for those who are, you know, I would I would hope most listeners are relatively familiar. But the big picture things are, uh, there are now forty elements across seven standards, where there were fifty eight across seven standards, um, and primarily that's a lot. There's there's a condensing of similar themes and topics that were in the previous um, previous version of the NQS. But you know, I think uh, that's that we 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 won't spend too much time talking about it, and I'd recommend going back and listening to our initial NQF review episode. We we did also complete last year, and I'm going to struggle to remember the episode numbers off the top of my head. But we did uh, we did uh, a, a bit of an in-depth discussion about quality area one and quality area two, uh, and we completed we with quality area one. We were actually really fortunate to talk to Rhonda Livingston, who's the national education leader for um, for a CEQA, and that is episode thirty. I can remember that one. But we also did one in the forties, I think, on the. Um, on the uh, quality area to children's health and safety. So um, the key things for services to be aware of in terms of looking into that would be uh, updating their quality improvement plans and uh, having a look particularly at the the sort of new guidance around uh, becoming an exceeding service. So that's a, a real uh, goal for your service. There are some different requirements for that now. But, um, uh, you know, Lisa, have you, have you talked to many services in the last little while about this big change? I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not too stressed about this change. I think it's actually largely good. It uh, clarifies a lot of the things that were a little unclear in the, end, in the previous version of the National Quality Standard. And it's the new, you know, sort of law of the land. So we're going to have to deal with it anyway. Yeah, I haven't found many um, services upset about it. I think it'll unfortunately will mostly come up for most services when they're next up for assessment and rating, which, or maybe when they're doing their QIPs. But um, I do think you know a bit of the boil goes off in services about the NQS b uh, between assessment and ratings. So, yeah, yeah, I think um, I've noticed that there's a bit of PD going around about it. I'm not really sure if you need to do PD about the new NQS. I think you can just read it and accept that it is different. Um, yeah, but uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, good luck to services who are adapting and, and moving towards those. Oh. And I imagine there'll be, um, we're a couple of weeks into, there's probably 
a few services out there who are already going through the assess who have you know received the first notification that they'll be uh, assessed and rated under this new service. So good luck to good luck to those services. But um, Lisa, do you want to do us a quick? But just oh. yeah, just before um, I do introduce sure. our guest, can I um, just talk about one good thing that happened at the end of last week, which is our guest from last week, um, uh, Deborah Brennan. Well, we had two guests from last week. We had the special episode with. Um, uh, Martel Men. Martel. Oh, I'm sorry, Martel. I forgot your name there for a minute. <laughs> um, uh, but we also had Deb Brennan to talk about the Lifting Our Game review. And last Friday was a COAG meeting. That's the Council of Australian Governments. And um, the council um, had been asked... Uh, the big council asked the Education Council, which is the the part of COAG that deals with education, to give advice about how um, how early education should be re- reformed. You know, to um, to make sure that it really um, helps children have the best uh, start possible. And um, they didn't kind of quite get to the topic on Friday, but what they decided to do was to ask both the authors of Lifting Our Game, Susan Pascoe and Deborah Brennan, and the chair of the Review to Achieve Excellence in Australian Schools, David Gonski, to all talk at the next COAG. So I think that's really exciting um, for us because it hasn't really been um, since, you know, we've only occasionally been mentioned in COAG since the NQF, um, yeah. yeah, was all formed. Um, we've gone off the boil for them. So once again, we're actually there, you know, being discussed by all states and territories. Now, obviously, it's because the states want money and territories want money out of the federal government and they've got Mm -hmm. the numbers on COAG, so therefore if they want special (laughs) guests, they can get them. But I do think, um, you know, it's good. Unfortunately, um, it is framing early education just as something to get children ready for school rather than, you know, a whole thing in itself. But... um, it is. I still think it is really good that we're there. Yeah, and that was kind of um, the framework of the report itself. So it was about sort of um, the yeah. Well, that's what they were asked to do. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll take what we can get. I mean, just two things really quickly on that one. Um, really fantastic to see uh, Professor Brennan and Dr. Pasco there. They'll be fantastic advocates for early childhood education. And you're absolutely right, Lisa. Generally, at, at the COAG meetings. Um, I'd say the topics when early childhood does um, rate a mention, they're often on what I'd call the sort of technical side. So it's often about squabbling over, you know, national partnership funding agreement money. So, you know, uh, signing up the new agreements around that. Uh, all things like the NQF review. I, this this uh, feels to me more strategic rather than technical. So they're actually going to be able to talk about big picture things around the sector, which uh, in the end, you know, getting bogged down in the technical discussions probably won't lead to system change, but the strategic discussions hopefully they'll be having, I think that's a really good thing and it may uh, take some time but could could lead to some really positive outcomes. Yeah, and I'd also just like to note that Professor Brennan is retiring in a few months, so it's kind of quite a nice end to her career. 
Yeah, the woman that wrote the Appearing on our podcast? Ch- no, that wasn't what I was going to oh, say, oh, Lou. Oh, Sorry, that's no, okay. Yeah, but appearing in front of Coag is certainly okay. a career I suppose, highlight. I suppose that's good too. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, beautiful. So, I mean, Lisa, uh, so we're going to cross down to an interview with Verena uh, Heron. Yeah, do you want so to give us a little Verena bit of background is chat? an industrial officer with the Independent Education Union of New South Wales and the EACT, the IEU. And um, we've, we've asked Verena to do an interview with us because a lot of people, I think, thought after the AEU United Voice case got, you know, um, uh, kind of turfed a bit by Fair Work Australia last week that that was the end of it. But there is another case going ahead for early childhood teachers and it hasn't yet been adjudicated by Fair Work Australia. So... Can we now go to Verena and find out exactly what's happening with that case? Through the magic of editing, Lisa, we certainly can. So (laughs) bear with us. Bear with us for a quick break and we'll be back with Verena. Verena, can you start off just by telling us a little bit about the IEU case and why early childhood teachers... Um, don't need to be worried because of the failure of the other case that was running. Okay. It, it's, look, all these industrial cases are extremely complex and I'd have to say it's hard enough for me to understand exactly what goes on, let alone somebody working in a childcare centre, I think. Both unions made an application for a pay equity case, but they were separate applications And so the commission, the Fair Work Commission, why they heard them together initially, the UV made an application for a question to be answered before anything else happened. The IU, on the other hand, proceeded to tell the commission we wanted heard. And at that time, we got a timetable for evidence, etc. The question that the UV asked the commission was answered in the negative and our case is still ongoing we have put in our evidence we've had 28 witnesses put in evidence from academics to practitioners to union officials etc arguing our case our case is argued on the pay equity question the preliminary question that uv wanted answered was whether or not you could use a 2000, to put it simply, and it's not quite as simplistic as this, is they wanted the commission to agree that you could use a comparator from 2005 rather than finding a, you know, a contemporary competitor. So, and the commission said, no, you actually do have to find a contemporary competitor. You could use the same one, but your evidence has got to be up to date. That's and are you using the same one or are you using well, a new one? Okay. We're we're what we're doing yes, we're 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 using we're using teachers in primary schools, we're using engineers, and we're using the value of work of early childhood teachers as compared to teachers in schools. Okay. So in order to get a pay equity case up, you need to 
satisfy three criteria. You must perform work of equal or comparable value. They are opposite gender and they must be unequally remunerated. So when you look at engineers, they're clearly mainly male and they're much more highly remunerated. And the opposite gender is the same thing. We've got males in schools and we've got schools. So our, our argument is teachers in schools, particularly primary schools, get the same training, et cetera, et cetera. Comparable, the work can be comparable. Why are teachers in early childhood centers so low they pay as compared to teachers in schools? That's sort of it in a nutshell. Without, you know, I, it, it's a very complex thing, but ours is going ahead. It will be heard in July of this year through to August. The final argument submissions will be heard in late September. And we hope that we'll get a decision late next year or early the following year. And, and it will – sorry? Verena, what states does it apply in? Like, it applies what? to all – because they're modern awards and modern awards covers everybody across Australia – it covers all early childhood teachers, no matter where they're employed. So we have supporting statements from the AEU, why they were part of the UV case. They have given us supporting evidence, and we've got witnesses from Victoria. We've got witnesses from Queensland, and, of course, being a I'm New South Wales-based, there are lots of witnesses from New South Wales. So, Verena, um, and obviously it sounds like the, the, the cases we're talking about are, are, are separate, but there's some parallels. Yeah. Um, do you, are you, you know, for you or the AU, are you, are you, um, are there lessons you're taking away from the decision or do you think there are implications in last week's decision for United Voice uh, for, for well, your case? Speaking to our senior counsel, he doesn't think there are because we didn't ask that question. Like the United, United Voice case was, can we use the 2005 comparable because it was made there? The commission made it clear they didn't think that case satisfied the principles under the Fair Work Act. And we certainly have, we, we've, it's a quite, they're quite separate cases. And why our case will only apply to teachers and teacher directors, I would think hopefully it will allow other wage increases to flow through. But that's, you know, that's my, myself idealistically speaking, you know, rather than what the Fair, Fair Work Commission might say, you know. So, so it will apply to every teacher working in early childhood in, across Australia. Verena, do you have any sense how what percentage of early child teachers are paid at the rates of the modern award compared oh, to those is, that are paid? It's a very difficult question. We're now currently um, undertaking further research because we've got to try and determine exactly how many. Because it's, if you, as you can imagine. We know in New South Wales, particularly where we have agreements, we've done masses. If you go on the Fair Work website, you can see masses of information about what we've supplied in terms of agreements and people not in agreements. The largest provider of 
childcare in Australia, G8, and all their subsidiaries pay the modern award, and that's it, not a cent more. Occasionally, maybe to attract somebody, they might put somebody up one or two steps, but that's about it. So there's a lot of teachers that are being paid just the modern award rates. But to try and get that information, the census in 2013 gave us a bit of information, but it's unclear whether the last census in 2017 has that same information contained in it. And, and of course, more teachers have been employed since that date because of the requirements under the, under the regs, right? One of the, um, my understanding is that one of the things that um, Fair Work has to look at is the capacity of the employers to pay. Is that correct? They will look that at that if the employers are raising it as an issue. I would imagine uh, if you, this case had more people than a bar table could hold it. Hold. I don't know whether you've ever been down at the Fair Work Commission, but those bar tables are quite large, and they had people sitting where normally the you know just people observing sit. So, and the Commonwealth and the state government were involved, like their parties to to it. So, what it depends on what they actually. I suppose the one advantage, which is not you know and. I, I'm a bit uncomfortable saying this, but the fact that it's just teachers at the moment, that will mean some of the employers will not mount as much evidence as they might have in the past, right? Which which employers are you talking about? Well, the, the employers that are paying the modern award. And, I mean, that's hard for me to know. They might, right? We've put, you know... I don't know how many, you know, hours and hours of resources into this as well as monetary funds to fund this case. I'm not sure because there's so few teachers as compared to childcare workers whether they're going to put the energy into the case. And I don't know and we won't know until May when we see their evidence. So Do we know how many early childhood uh, teachers there are across the country? Would it, it's it's quite substantial. So in New South Wales, there's six thousand, approximately, and that includes casuals, probably, and things like that. There's probably six thousand employed. Some, a lot of them part time, and, and if you extrapolated that across the state, so there'd be eleven, twelve thousand, I think, at least. So I, sorry, that's a lot. I, that's a lot of people being underpaid. It is an awful lot of people underpaid. I mean, but then you have to look at some of them. Probably, you know, the preschool teachers in the ACT aren't preschool teachers in the Department of, of Education and Communities or edu Education in New South Wales aren't that are attached to schools. So you know, what about are, Victorian teachers? It seems to Victor me that a well, Victorian teachers, well they are well paid and that is because the union has been able to negotiate agreements with the Victorian government and the employer bodies to ensure that these teachers are paid correctly. However, in the private sector in Victoria, it's not quite the same pattern. Um, 
Farina, it might be great for, for, for people who, um, you know, listen to the podcast uh, regularly or, or maybe new to it. Um, particularly, we, we talked a bit about the pay equity case, uh, last yeah. week in a bonus episode yes. with the AEU. Um, mm-hmm. so people may be hearing a lot of, so we're hearing sort of United Voice, we're hearing the AEU, we're hearing the IEU tonight. Would it be, it'd be great if you could give us maybe a really brief summary of, um, the Independent Education Union? The IEU represents teachers in, um, early childhood centres and the New South, and I can only speak basically on behalf of the New South Wales branch. But in this uh, case, where we're certainly talking to our Queensland colleagues, we cover teachers whether they be in long day care preschool in New South Wales. Uh, in Queensland, the IU covers teachers uh, working in preschools. Uh, UB covers teachers in um, long day care in Victoria. It's the AU that covers teachers no matter where they are situated, whether they be in preschool or long day care. And in South Australia, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Western Australia, it's UV. Tasmania, it's basically UV, unless the centres are attached directly to a school. I think I understand this stuff, but it's very confusing even it's to me. It's very, oh, it is, and it's complicated. Can I can I just touchy. try and summarise it a bit um, for, uh, for listeners and you tell me if yeah. I've got it right? There's historical reasons why different unions have got different coverages in different states, but essentially... There's three unions that are active in the early education. Well, I suppose four unions, four to five unions that are active in the education care space. There's those, uh, the union that covers local government workers. Yes, and can I just interrupt you there? They were involved in the case at the beginning but decided not to pursue it. So they they didn't make an application but they were there saying we're an interested party but they haven't. They're, they've dropped out of it now. So there's so there's them. Then there's United Voice, which yes. which tends to cover educators, but in some states also covers early childhood teachers. That's and then right. there's um, the Australian Education Union, which covers teachers in some states and in some sectors in some states. And then yes. there's the Independent Education Union, which covers. Um, in some teachers in some states and in some sectors in some states. Is that a fair summary? Yes, yes, I think so. Without complicating it for people about who covers which, which where, why, I think well, that's yeah, a okay. summary. Now, okay. can I also ask, because I think um, that there's confusion about this, um, when, you know, like, you have unions who are on the side of workers and then you have employer organisations that are on the side of employers. What are the main employer organisations that um, are are connected to the case? Uh, Okay. The the main ones are the Australian Federation of Employees Employer Organiser Industries, AFEI. I'm not sure I've got those names right, but anyways, it's AFEI, ABL, and the, um, what they used to call it, 
I think it's what used to be called the Chamber of Commerce, was heavily involved in United Voice One, but I'm not too sure whether they are there. There was various other little employer organizations scattered across the country that pop up on at various times in the video conferencing and Fair Work Australia. So there, there is quite there's not a central employer bog organization the same way as another central union. I mean, uh, in Queensland, you've got C and K and people like that who represent their their members here. We've got um, CCSA in New South Wales, so it's quite a disparate lot. But the, you'd have to say, in terms of the big players, there are big players that are quite opposed, were extremely opposed to the union's applications and have tried to delay it as much as they can, it will be very interesting to see what they come up with on the 12th of May. And everything is available on the Fair Work website. So it's interesting for people to go there and have a look to see what people have to say. That includes transcripts from, you know, when we've had hearings and things like that. And, and you mentioned that G8 was one of the employers that was opposing the application. Yes. Was that yours or both yours and the United They, they opposed everybody, but they weren't there as G8. They were there represented through one of the big employer organisations, and I think it was a Australian business lawyers and the Chamber of Commerce. So, What about Good Start, Verena? Good Start... Uh, hasn't opposed the application so and they've been quite silent on it my understanding is they're supportive of better wages for childcare workers so, so just early childhood I, educators very would be great well i think of yeah educators yes thanks teachers and and child care whatever uh, child care educators and educated teachers, teacher educators. So they are very supportive of that. And it was pretty clear in their last uh, EBA agreement uh, how much they did support but their employees. So, so they're there, I think, in a very supportive role and are always, you know, happy to talk to us about better wages and conditions. So I'm, I know that I'm not sure whether they were going to be actively involved in the UV case or not. So uh, I'm not sure about that. Okay. And just, um, Yan, I suppose the final thing I wanted to ask is this must be costing your union and every other union involved an enormous amount of money. An extremely I- large amount. Yes, <laughs> I know. Um, I know how um, uh, few. Um, uh, well, how comparatively a smaller proportion of the sector is unionised. Why yes. are your unions prepared to do it when you know you're not getting the support of the sector that possibly well, they should be? Well, I guess that is an interesting question. And I think our union has always been, you know, since, and I'm showing my age here, thank God we're not on video Skyping, um, (laughs) uh, that, you know, that we've always supported this sector. 
I always supported the teachers and the teacher directors involved in this sector through taking special cases to the New South Wales Commission or whatever to ensure that we could try and get their wages as close to te as teachers in schools. Our broad membership, of which we in New South Wales we have over 35,000 union members, and in nationally we've got 70 or 80,000 union members. Don't quote me on that figure. I'm not exactly sure. It could be more. Uh, they, they're all supportive of ensuring that qualified teachers are paid appropriately. Our union uh, took this, the possibility of this case to our executive and then to our other governing bodies, and they all supported it. It is a very expensive case, I have to say. You know, we've got barristers, senior counsels, we have uh, two people that work on it practically full-time. There's research to be done, witness statements to see. We have to pay for our witnesses to come and release for them, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a very costly exercise. And I, I you know, I, I think it, it was, it's a commitment that we have because we don't – why – we would love to see the government to come out and say, you know, teachers must be paid appropriately. We can't see this government doing it, and we're not too sure that we could see a Labor government doing that as well, given they have had the opportunity to do it in the past and haven't done it. Mm, okay, well, I suppose um, all we can say is, you know, the best of luck and... No, I hope that everyone that listens to this podcast is a member of their union or is seriously thinking about becoming a member of their union because um, it sounds like you might be on a winner and it would be good if everyone participated in helping that case become a winner. And I think the same should be said. I mean, UV has made a decision. It, they can make another application if they wish. At the moment, they're doing their Big Steps campaign, which I think is a, a great campaign and every success to them in that. But it's a very different type of approach to the same problem. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much for coming and talking to the Early Education Show, Verena, and we hope to have you on again when the case wins. Okay. It'll be great. Thank you. Okay, welcome back and thanks again to Verena for taking the time to discuss uh, very complex and, and tricky. As, I mean, I, I walk away from these things going, is there not one single part of the early childhood sector that can just be simple and easy to understand? But uh, apparently not. We're, we're not that lucky. Maybe one day. Um, but we will, I think we'll be tracking this. Uh, this, oh, this as... Sorry, I'd, I'd like to, to <laughs> challenge that oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> Protest noted. I go, read go a ahead. publication today that defined what a child was. <laughs> that was a government publication. <laughs> what, was, what was the definition, Lisa? Oh, you wouldn't want to know. You'd just scream. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that could be our next competition. So send <laughs> answers on a postcard, people. What do you think the federal government's definition of a child would be? Um, my my, my, uh, my entry would be uh, non-productive, non-working unit. 
Yeah, that, that's kind of how the government views them, isn't it? <laughs> um, the same publication also had a wonderful line in it. I'm not sure if I can remember it directly. I'm sure I flicked it to you, Liam, but it was something like an enrolment Enrolment of children is an important thing for early education and care <laughs> services. I mean, uh, mean, whatever they're paying these geniuses who come up with these <laughs> amazing insights into the sector, it is clearly not enough. Mm -hmm. um, let's move on to our recommendations for the week. And we're actually just going to do a big joint sector, a, a big, sorry, a big joint um, podcast recommendation where uh, given the, the new national quality standard is up and running, we're just going to really redirect everyone to the new guide to the national quality framework. Uh, the you can now all order all five hundred pages all, of it. All five hundred pages of it. Now, a seeker encourages you to use an online version. I'm still pretty analog, so uh, literally today, as we record this on a Wednesday night, uh, that my my hard copy arrived and is planted on my desk and is beginning to be leafed through. But uh, really fantastic document um, it includes the you know the operational requirements, the the guide to the new standard, uh, and is really you know as close to the Bible as you're going to get in the sector. So we can do no better this week, I think. Uh, then redirect everyone towards that. Uh, but that's it for another episode. Thanks for returning uh, with us for the, our second episode of the year. Um, before we do our final sign-off, I just want to remind everyone about our Patreon account. So for those who are enjoying uh, the, the crazy chats we have on this podcast, your support is really valuable and appreciated. And one of the things that the Patreon community tend to do is for supporters is they get rewards and extra bonus things. Now, we've done none of that up to now. I'm making a much bigger effort to do more this year. So we're going to try and do a little sneak preview uh, of each episode uh, each week. But, um, you know, there might be some other more fun things to, to, to come out as well. So uh, support is really appreciated. If you can... Um, you know, chuck us your support where we, you know, would be even more grateful. And thank you to everyone who has done so far, who's done so, so far. Uh, we do, it's really valuable and helps us, you know, keep this, keep this crazy juggernaut rolling along. Uh, but that's it for another week. So until we're back uh, next episode, episode 56, it's goodbye from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.